Okay, if your Bible's on a bicycle, to turn to Isaiah chapter 33, beginning in verse 20. Zach, uh, Isaiah chapter 33, beginning in verse 20. It says, Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down, not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. But there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams wherein shall go no galleys with oars neither shall gallant ship pass thereby for the Lord is our judge the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our King. He will save us. Here we begin by there being a focus upon Zion. From a literal standpoint, Zion is Jerusalem. But many times in the Old Testament, great poetic imagery is given. <coughs> to paint a picture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that's called Zion. It's called Mount Zion. It's called Jerusalem. And he tells us to look upon that city, not upon the physical, geographic location of Jerusalem, but to look upon the city of God. To look upon Zion to look upon the place where the Lord himself dwells. Look upon Zion. There's a whole lot of things that can distract us in this old world that can take our eyes away from Zion. But he says, bring your eyes back. Look upon Zion. I love in the book of Ruth, uh, and the book of Ruth is a beautiful picture uh, of Ruth as the bride of Christ, Ruth as the church, and Boaz as the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the husband of Ruth. And Boaz would tell Ruth in that book, he said, don't let your eyes be on another field but you let it be on my field. What he's telling Ruth is that you'll find what you need in my field. And so it is as the bride of Christ today, the church of the living God will find what we need in Boaz's field, which is the Lord's field, which is Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Don't be tempted to look in another field. 
Don't think that the world has what we need. But look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Now Zion is not our city. It's the Lord's city. The Lord Jesus would tell Peter in Matthew 16, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, meaning upon himself and upon the truth about himself, the truth about the Lord Jesus. Thou art Peter, but upon this rock, upon me and the truth about me, says King Jesus, I will build your church. No. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this Mount Zion is not ours. It's the Lord's. This church is not ours. It's the Lord's church. I'm going to tell you when I'm partaking in something that's not mine or staying in a place that's not mine, I'm very careful to do what the owner tells me to do. We've uh, at various church meetings across the country, sometimes we'll get a BRBO, that's a vacation rental by owner, or we'll get an Airbnb, and that's where you rent somebody else's house, and you're able to use it for a little while, but it's not your house, it's their house. And I try to be very careful when we rent one of these places to go by the rules of the owner, because it's not my place, it's their place. I'm going to tell you this church is the Lord's church. This Mount Zion is the Lord's. And we need to be careful how we behave. We need to be careful how we act in the Lord's church. That's why it's so important for us to do things the way the Lord told us to do them. He's given us a sweet pattern of preaching, praying, and singing. And there's nothing we need to add to that. Certainly nothing we need to take away from it. But do things the way he has told us to do it. He called it the city of our solemnities. Now this city is not ours. It's his. But I'm going to tell you there's blessings in this city that are ours. That we're blessed to be possessors of. We're blessed in this city to be possessors of the joy of this city. Now he says, this is a city of solemnities. Solemnities means a reverence. And when we come to the house of God, we need to come in a reverent way. Uh, we're not to behave in the house of God like we would at a ball game, and we should conduct ourselves appropriately at a ball game, but this is a place of reverence. Brother Ricky, as he was praying, he prayed for us that would stand in this sacred place. Uh, this place is not sacred because of a wood thing in front of me called a pulpit. It's not a sacred place because it's a foot or two higher than the rest of the congregation so people can see me and hear me. It's a sacred place because of what happens here. Amen. It's a sacred place because it's where the proclamation of the gospel of the good news of the Lord Jesus sounds full. So this is to be a place of solemnity where we come with seriousness and respect. But that doesn't mean it's a sad place. 
It's a place of joy. The Apostle Paul, in writing unto the church at Philippi, he would write this letter as a prisoner of the Roman authorities. But he would say in this letter, as he's a prisoner, he would say, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So this is a place of joy. The Bible would tell us in another place, I believe it's in the book of Isaiah, with joy you can draw out of the waters of salvation. It's a place of joy. And it's a place, it's a city of our solemnities. It's not our city, but the things that we're blessed to participate in the city with, they are ours. The joy of this place is our joy. The rest of this place is our rest. The peace of this place, Mount Zion, it's our peace. And the salvation and the deliverance of this place, it's ours. And we're blessed to be possessors of it. He said, thine eyes shall see Jerusalem. He's already said, look upon Zion. And then he said, thine eyes shall see. This is not a city to, to make a passing glance at or just to spend a little bit of time in and in your own about your way. But it's a place to focus on. It's a place to look upon. It's a place for thine eyes to see. You know, when you go to a very beautiful place that has so many beautiful things, a place where you can see the beauty of the Lord's creation, maybe it's in the beautiful mountains, maybe it's in beautiful gardens, maybe it's in beautiful streams, maybe it's with beautiful waterfalls. And you just want to stay there a while because there's so much to see. And, and you begin to walk about that place and you can see beauties from different angles. You can see the beauty of the place and you just want to stay there. That's Mount Zion. Everywhere you walk, there's beauty, there's wonderful things to see. It says it's a quiet habitation. The word quiet means it's a place of peace, means it's a place of rest. And it's a habitation. What does habitation mean? It's a place to live. It's a place to dwell. That word habitation literally means it's an abode of shepherds or flocks. It's a place for the sheep to dwell, for the sheep to feel safe, for the sheep to feel secure, for the sheep to be away from all the things of the world. It's a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. <laughs> now I'm going to tell you the scriptures go through a lot of words there to say this tabernacle is here forever. Yeah. This city is here forever. 
This city will never be destroyed. This city will never end. What a blessing. This church of the Lord Jesus Christ will never end. Remember what Jesus told Peter that we already quoted. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The devil and all of his little devils, all of his angels cannot destroy this city. It'll be here forever. You know, I love a little bit earlier in the book of Isaiah where the prophecies given of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great king that would come in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is a kingdom. This is a government that shall never be destroyed but shall last forever. That's described here as a tabernacle. And the tabernacle they had in the wilderness, it, they were always on the move. And you put the tent up, the tabernacle up, which was a tent. And what's being described here is a tent. We have stakes for a tent. We have cords or ropes to help keep a tent up. And he's describing this as a tent, but normally you would get a tent and you pick it up from one place and you go to another. But he said, here's a tent. Here's a tabernacle that not one cord's ever gonna be broken. Not one stake shall ever be removed, but it's gonna be here. You know, I love it when we're fixing to go into communion and we quote that verse that the Apostle Paul quoted to the church at Corinth, where he says, for as oft as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do show forth the Lord's death till he come. What does that mean? That means when the Lord Jesus Christ comes the second time without sin unto salvation, when he comes with the voice of the archangel, he comes with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall be raised. When he comes, there's still going to be a people eating of that bread and drinking of that cup and believing just as we do in the grace of God and the finished work of the Lord Jesus. That city will still be here. What a blessing that is. It says, but there, where? In Zion, in this city, right here, but there, but here, the glorious Lord will be unto us. <laughs> 
We could stop right there. There's a whole sermon in that right here, right here in Mount Zion, right here in the city of the living God, right here in the church of the Lord Jesus, right here is the Lord, is the Lord. They're the glorious Lord. One of the things we get to look at in Zion is the glory of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord, the glory of his majesty. But there the glorious Lord will be unto us. Who was that child born? Unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a place of broad rivers and streams. We looked the other day when we were trying to preach in Psalms chapter 1 about that tree planted by the waters. It didn't matter how dry the land got around it because it was planted by the river, it still was able to bear fruit. We're going through a very dry time now. A lot of plant and vegetation, a lot of stuff is dying. And Lord being our help, we need to keep praying for rain. There's a good chance tomorrow, and we pray the Lord will answer that prayer tomorrow, if not before, that we'll be blessed with rain. But even in the dry desert of this world, and I'm going to tell you, even when it's raining every day, this world's a dry desert spiritually. It's always a dry desert. But I'm going to tell you in this place, it's a place of broad rivers and streams. It's a place that gives us a general blessing when we come to it. But it's a place that gives us an individual blessing. You see, because the Lord can apply here what happens here today, to your heart in an individual way. Did you know that? And preachers sometimes hear different members of the congregation will come and say, when you said this, that really meant something to me and that really applied to me what's going on in my life. And then somebody else, they won't think anything about what the other person said. That's not what meant something to them, but what meant to them will be something else. You see, the Lord can give a general blessing, but he can give you an individual blessing and give you just what you need. Amen. It's unto us individually a place of broad rivers and streams. Wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. This is not a place of the world. This sweet river here, and by the way, again, to show how it's not talking about Jerusalem, there ain't no river in Jerusalem. There's no, there's no river that runs through the literal city of Jerusalem. This is talking about, this is an imagery of the church of the Lord Jesus. This is an imagery of the blessings of the kingdom of the Lord. There's no literal river in physical Jerusalem. But it's not talking about that. But this place, the world doesn't know about it. The world doesn't see the beauty of it. The world can't comprehend it. No big ships are going to come in on this river. But we've been blessed to see it. Jesus would tell his disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see. 
and your ears for they hear. If you've been blessed to see the beauty of the Lord, if you've been blessed to see the beauty of His kingdom and to hold it very dear, you are blessed indeed. Blessed are your eyes for they've seen. Blessed are your ears for they've heard. He would go on to say many righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see but did not see them and to hear those things which ye hear and did not hear them. You see, the Lord had not set up His glorious kingdom in the Old Testament times, but when King Jesus came, He set up a kingdom. And we are blessed to be in that kingdom. Isaiah wrote about it. How beautiful it would be. How glorious it would be. But Isaiah was not blessed to be in the kingdom, the New Testament kingdom, the New Testament church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the way we are today. It's a tremendous blessing. Jesus would describe it as a treasure hidden in the field, which with a man hath found. He hideth it and he goeth and he sells all that he has to buy the field. It's worth everything. It says, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he shall save us. I'm told that the founding fathers looked at this verse for the three branches of government that we have today. We have the legislative branch, we have the executive branch, we have the judicial branch. He said, the Lord is our judge, judicial branch. The Lord is our lawgiver, legislative branch. The Lord is our king, executive branch. He will save us. You know what's wrong with the government of the United States of America? People are running. That's what's wrong with it. You know why this government here in this kingdom is perfect and it's good and it's glorious? The Lord's running. It's his king. He's the king. When I first came to Providence, I asked a question. I said, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ a democracy? I asked that question. We get into conference, and generally, the majority of vote of a conference is what carries the day. But the church is not a democracy. Amen. The church is a kingdom. And there's only one opinion that ever really matters, and that's the opinion of the king. That's what the king thinks. And all of our job is, whether it's in the church, whether it's in our personal lives, is to bow upon our knees and say, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Lord, lead me. Lord, guide me. Lord, show me. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, give me the courage and strength to do it. Because all that really matters at the end of the day is what the Lord wants us to do. I want to go to one more set of verses as uh, we try to bring our remarks to a close. Psalms chapter 48 and verse 11 says, Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad. Again, this is a place of solemnity, seriousness, but it's a place of joy. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgment. Walk about Zion. Go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. You see, you can see more of the beauty of this city by walking around it. Just as you can 
look in the Lord's creation and you're like, hey, when I get on this side of the waterfall, I see an aspect of beauty I didn't see when I was looking at it straight forward. And when I get on this side, I can see a beauty of it I didn't see from the other side. The more we walk about Zion, how do we do that? Being in Zion, being in the church of the Lord Jesus, singing songs of praise to the Lord, listening to gospel preaching, being in this book every day that tells us about the beauty of the kingdom. He said, walk about Zion, go round about her, tell the towers thereof, count the towers. Look at the beauty. A towers is a high place. A tower is a place that helps protect you because you can see the enemies that are outside and it's a place of protection. You know the first tower? This comes from a Hebrew word called migdah. It's the Hebrew word here for tower. You know the first place it's mentioned in the Bible? Wasn't a tower in Mount Zion. It was a tower men was trying to build to get greater than God. It's called the Tower of Babel. That was the first time that word migdal, that word Hebrew word here rendered tower, was mentioned. And I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of towers of men in this world that can distract us from the towers that really matter. We can look out in the world and see man trying to achieve their greatness and trying to achieve their might and trying to achieve their power. And those towers of the world, that tower of Babel, where they said, we're going to make a tower that nearly reaches up into heaven and we'll be greater than God. I'm going to tell you, that kind of man's thinking is still very prevalent in the world today and it can distract us from the towers that really matter. The towers of the Lord's grace. The towers of His truth. The towers of His everlasting love. The towers of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. So that heaven and mortal glory will be our home. Those precious towers. That same Hebrew word, Song of Solomon, is mentioned flowers. You know, the church is described in Song of Solomon as a garden enclosed. A spring shut up. A fountain sealed. I remember, I don't remember if it was a Hallmark movie, but a little girl that had a secret garden. It was beautiful. It had some of the most beautiful flowers you could ever imagine. But nobody, it was hidden behind a bunch of hedges, and you had to know how to get in there to see that place. But it was a special place to that little girl. I'm going to tell you, the world doesn't see the preciousness of this place. I'm going to tell you, it's, it's a beautiful place. It's got towers. That, again, that word tower in Song of Silence mentioned flowers. I had a wonderful question one time from a sister uh, that's here today. And I love getting Bible questions. There's four places in 1 Kings chapter 6 where Solomon is building the temple. And on the walls of the temple, on the walls of the doors, on the, on the cedar of the temple, there's numerous things. One of those things is open flowers. She says, why does it say open flowers and why is that so important? And I kind of studied it out and thought about it a little while and meditated and prayed. 
You know, a bud is, can be pretty, the bud of a flower. But it's not near as beautiful as an open flower. When the flower opens, we see the beauty of it. And those open flowers were all over the place of worship of the Lord, all over the temple of the living God. We're blessed to see beautiful flowers in his kingdom today. We sing that song, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. The voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God, is closes. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none of it has ever known. We can come to this garden together as a congregation, but the Lord still blesses us to meet with us in a very personal way as if we came to the garden alone. Said, mark ye well her bulwarks, her fortifications, her protections. It's a place of safety. It's a place for us to be safe. It's a place for our families to be safe. It's a place to deliver us from this present evil world. It's a place of bulwarks, of fortifications, of protections from the enemy. Consider her palaces, her lavishness, her majesty, her glory, her nice place to dwell, that she may tell it to the generation following. Our children pick up more in the house of God than we think. How important it is for children to see their mamas and their daddies and their brethren and their sisters in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to see them worship the Lord the way that the Lord has told us to worship him in his city, to tell it to the generation following, to tell how good the Lord's been to us, to tell how great and how merciful he's been to us, to tell our children how the Lord's delivered me in my life to tell him how he's delivered his people throughout history. To tell it to the generation following. If we don't tell them, who will? The world won't. If we don't tell them, who will? For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even in the dead. He leads us. He guides us. Whenever I've been on some tour that had a guide, you know where I stay close to? The guide. You know, I was in a tour of the White House one time. You get in the wrong part of the White House, you may get Secret Service pointing a gun in your face. I stayed close to the guide. We were in a cave one time. If you got too far away from the guide, they turned the lights out on you, and you look to your left, there's a huge ravine you could fall in to your left. There's a huge ravine to the right. I learned where the guide was, there was going to be light, and where the guide was, there was going to be safety. You know where I stayed? Close to the guide. The Lord is our guide. We should stay close to him, even unto death. And I'll close with this. Elder Harold Hunt, in a booklet he wrote, conveyed a true historical account 
of a little church in the Byzantine Empire. There was an evil empress over the empire named Theodosia. She decided that this little church was a threat to the peace of her people. So she sends a Byzantine general to destroy the church. The general goes out and he gathers up the members of the church. He tries to get the members of the church to stone the pastor. And he threatened them, he coerced them, he finally got them to pick up stones, but he never could get them to throw a stone at the pastor. So finally the general looked to his soldiers and he said, you do it. And they picked up stones and they began to throw it at the pastor. And the pastor died. And that general looks at the congregation. He said, whoever believes the same thing this man preached, step up and take his place. One by one, the members of that little congregation went up to where the pastor had stood. His soldiers again began to pelt him with the rocks where one after another after another suffered martyrdom because they refused to deny their faith and their allegiance in following our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. After numerous of the congregation had been stoned to death like the pastor, the general had finally had enough. And he went and he dropped on his knees before the remaining living, those of the congregation that had not yet been stoned. And he said, tell me about this Jesus. Tell me about it. And no, none of the other rest of the congregation were stoned on that day. But here's a little church that's lost its pastor. It's under great persecution. What would they do? It's the sweet providence of God would have it. That same general that had ordered the deaths of the pastor of the congregation became their pastor. God is greater than anything. He is our guide. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. God bless you is my prayer. Come ahead, Brother John. Grace is
Um, I'm not trying to add anything here, but the verse that our brother was covering right there in verse 20 says, The tabernacle, um, not one of the stakes of which shall be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. Sometimes I wonder in my life how much I truly appreciate that. We have lived a life that most people in this world, pretty much everybody in this world, would covet to have. Um, I have not gone through no physical persecution in my life. Not one bit. In fact, most of my life has been surrounded by people, not only here in this congregation, but around in my life where being a Christian is promoted. feels good. People usually praise you for that, and hopefully they praise the Lord more than they praise you, but I have not gone through much. There were people that did. Throughout all ages, through every century, even this day, there are Christians that are being persecuted for what they believe in. Amen. Try not to get ahead of myself right here. This is God's house. This is God's assembly. The Lord told us in Psalms chapter 118 that this is the Lord's working and it is marvelous in our eyes. Though we find ourselves in places in life where we should align ourselves with the Word of God, where we should stand by those walls of Zion, where we should tell those towers, where we should find good men who preach the Word, who are watchmen, and who watch over the flock, who watch out for danger to tell us when it's coming. Good, reliable men of faith, we should do all of those things and we should find ourselves in those places and I'll tell you child of God that can be the difference between the assembly staying with you or going somewhere else but make no mistake the assembly is not the assembly the church is not the church if it is not the Lord's doing the watchman can wait but in vain a city can be built up but if it's not of the Lord, it's not going to stand. And I'm going to tell you something so sweet that we experienced this morning is that the Lord's Spirit was here. The truth was preached. That is the biblical seal that this is the church of the living God. It is something to behold. It's something to marvel in. It's something to see those streams coming in and be glad that this is the city of God. Thank the Lord that such is the case. Our faults are centered this morning in Romans chapter 12. And we'll start in verse 1. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Rome. And he starts this letter. We'll read the first two verses. It says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For the sake of time, 
uh, we'll try to make this um, as time efficient as we possibly can. But when it says these things, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. How do we make ourselves a sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God? You know, the Lord said that sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. The last time that I've been up here, it seemed like I focused a lot on the fact that the Old Testament is no longer um, active in the sense that we bring forth lambs and goats and we sacrifice them for the blood, for the cleansing of the people, and they're not. Neither was it here. But the fact of the matter is the Lord is getting at something getting at something right here. These are the Lord's words. The Apostle Paul penned them, but the Lord inspired them. The Lord wrote this book. The fact of the matter is that the Lord commands us here to um, bring ourselves, our bodies, a sacrifice out of obedience. It's a sacrifice of obedience of our actions, of our bodies, of our minds, of our hearts to do exactly what he told us to do. No, no greater example, in my opinion, than what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where Saul was commanded to kill Agag, the king there. And he was commanded to kill all the women. He was commanded to kill all the children, all the infants, all the sheep, all the goats, everything. What did Saul do? Saul went down there and he said, we're going to do everything what the Lord said. But he said... We're going to keep Agag. That's a nice trophy. We'll take him back to show how the Lord gave us the victory. We're going to save the best of the world's flocks, and we're going to take them back to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to keep some of these people back, and we'll kill everybody else. You know what happened after that? Samuel, the prophet, came back, and he said, What is this lowing of cattle I hear in my ears? Why is he still alive? That's not what the Lord told you to do. And when it finally came culminating to the point where Saul had realized what he had done, in verse 22, he said, It is better to obey than to sacrifice. If we don't do it God's way, it's wrong. No matter how much we feel like we have liberty in our minds to say, this looks like it's a good thing to do. You know, it would be nice to bring some of the best of Agag's flock back. It would be nice to show him to be, to be alive to the children of Israel that we said we won the victory. That's not what God said to do. And because God said not to do it, we don't do it. God is more pleased with obedience than he is with sacrifice. It's not good to do things our way if the Lord said to do it my way. Amen. He said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and in verse 13, and there's gravity to this verse if you read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon goes through a lot of head-spinning rationale, shall we say. He said, I gave my heart to know wisdom folly, and even madness. This was the smartest man that ever lived, on the lived in the world, save Jesus Christ. He was given God-given wisdom, but he abused that wisdom. Right. He took it to places that no man should have ever taken it. He took it to the places of ungodliness in this world. He took it to low places. He used it for things that he shouldn't have used it for. Much of his time went to waste. And you know what he saw when he looked on all of his vineyards, all of his men servants and maid servants, all of his singers, all of his flocks and herds, all the smart men that were around him, all the things that he had penned. You know what he had built with his life? He said, it's all vanity. It's all vexation of spirit. You know what that means? 
That means that all of those things hypnotized him. That means all of those things, when he looked at it, he saw a goal and he was pushing to that goal with everything that he had. And when he finally grabbed hold of that goal, you know what he got? He got a fistful of anger. He didn't get anything out of that because he said the best thing that a man can do is glory in God. He said the best thing for a man to do is to fear God and keep his commandments. Do you know where the fear of God comes from? I'll tell you who doesn't have the fear of God. In Romans chapter 3, we see a very, very clear um, exposition of what the depravity of man looks like, of what man in his natural state looks like. And it says there is no fear of God before his eyes. An unborn again child of God or a goat will never see the fear of God. Yet we find one of the sweetest scriptures in the entire scripture in Luke chapter 23 where Jesus is on the cross and there are two malefactors right on either side of him. And scripture tells us that they were both railing on him. They were both cursing him out. And I expect they were taking the Lord's name in vain because they don't think he's the Lord. They just think he's some weirdo that's come over here and preached all these things and gotten this big following. Excuse me for my frail language. But they were both railing on him. They were both insulting the Son of God. And Jesus took it. He stood as a lamb before his shears is done. He didn't open his mouth. But then in the providence and the miracle of God, God came down and touched one of those thieves' hearts. At the point where he had no fear of God before his eyes, he looks at the other man when he's cursing him out and says, Dost thou not fear God? Jesus, his spirit, when he comes into your heart in regeneration, teaches you, how to fear God. He teaches you how to keep His commandments. He shows you in the sweetest way possible why it is so important that we do these things. Amen. In closing, verse 1 of Romans chapter 12, and we haven't, that's the gist of what, this, what these verses are saying. But, Motivation is covered here. Fuel for why we serve God appropriately after His ways and not after ways that we feel is rational. And if we read this, it's easy to run over. It says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. There was years and years and years of my life where I read that verse and I didn't see why should we present our bodies a living sacrifice? I beseech you, brethren. Paul's talking to his brethren. Paul's talking to people that he loves. And the word beseech literally means I implore you. I beg you. The Apostle Paul used to not be a very begging man. He didn't ask people what to do. He told them what to do. And when he said it, they jumped. Paul, in a great humility of speech, and humility becomes a child of God, by the way. He says, humble yourselves under the righteous hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humility is a good characteristic of a child of God. I've spent a lot of my life working on how I can be the humblest one in the room, and that's not how humility works. We should be... Seekers of humility, but we shouldn't. It's not a goal. 
that we have, but humility becomes a child of God. Paul very humbly, I almost see him on his knees, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Paul is beseeching them because of the mercies of God. But there's a dual meaning to this saying, the mercies of God, which is the fuel for why we should present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And I think this is a daily action. There's some brethren out there that will tell you this is only in the church service of Jesus Christ. You know, I don't have a problem with that. But in order to be an acceptable sacrifice here, you need to be living for him out there. Daily crucifying our flesh. Daily saying, Lord, this is your way that I'm going to follow. I'm not going to follow my own way of pride. This is your life. I'm just living. But he says, by the mercies of God is how you're going to present your bodies a living sacrifice. I don't want to take anything away from what Brother Mark says. And I hope you understand when I do this, I'm not trying to create false emotion here. But let us consider the setting of the book of Romans. Romans was written to the church at Rome around A.D. 57 to A.D. 59, something around there. The emperor at that time over Rome was Emperor Claudius Nero. He was a person that we know as Nero. He was perhaps the most bloodthirsty, the most messed up, the most prideful emperor that Rome had ever seen. This man was so messed up that he would do things even before this event that we're about to talk about where he would just put on plays. He loved to be a showman. He loved for people to cheer for him. He loved to be the center of attention, and he would do things like if someone didn't clap for him in the streets, when he came outside of his palace, he'd just like, go ahead and kill him. He had no regard, no regard for human life. He would put on plays where he would actually kill somebody, and that was the center of it. There was a time in A.D. 64, about five years after this book was written, where a fire broke out in Rome. And history would tell us that Nero himself ordered that this fire would go across all of Rome and three, it was two-thirds of the city, I believe, just burnt to the ground. He did it so he would make room for his new palace that he wanted. So he'd have more glory amongst men. This bloodthirsty monster blamed the Christians for a fire that he started. And five years after this book was written, these church members saw their family burn at the stake. They saw them open coliseums, be wrapped in animal skins, and be fed to wild beasts. These people knew persecution. They couldn't go to church anymore. They had to tunnel down under cemeteries, a place where the dead were, and meet there. Spirit of God knew this. When he inspired and said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, he knew all this was going to happen. The mercies of God are worth it. 
It's motivation enough to see the mercies of God. It will bring you through anything. It's enough to grab hold of it. It's fuel enough. And one of the things that I take from this is the fact how much of the book of Romans focuses on sufferings. I think it's only one verse in Romans 8.18 where it says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us when time is no more. What Jesus has bought you is more than any physical persecution that you could ever go through, is more than any emotional toil that you go through in this life. The mercies of God should be the theme of our life every single day. The book of Romans does focus on the grace of God. The book of Romans does focus on being justified by faith in Christ Jesus where he says take hold of the gospel that is the, um, the gospel of your salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek where the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that is through the gospel that you may acknowledge these sweet things. People grab hold of this so hard that they were willing to go to death. For this. I ask us that are in this room, I ask myself, Lord, help us that we never have to go through that. Thank God that He has put a hedge around us that we've never had to go through something like that. Amen. But if we do, God willing, we'd be like Job and say, The Lord hath given and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's good. He's righteous. He's holy in everything that he does. If the Lord ever takes up the hedge from this, I stand very confident. Very confident. I'm not saying this to puff you up, but I'm saying this because I mean it. But I'm standing around a great cloud of witnesses who will not bow their knee to Babel. I know that. I've seen your life. I've never seen anyone give their life to the death there, but I've seen you give your life every day to that. I've seen you die daily, just like the Apostle Paul said, where he set his affections on things above and not on things of the earth, and he mortified his members, and he lived a life for the Lord, not a life for himself, not a life for his fleshly pursuits. Would to God that if we never have the privilege, and it would be a privilege to die for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would, we would die for him today. That we would die for him tomorrow. And that we would crucify our flesh. And that he would let us, or not let us, excuse me, that we would bear our cross for him. Amen. Lord bless you in my prayer. Amen.